So today is week number two in our family series called No Place Like Home. It is also Memorial Day weekend. And so uh, in trying to do, occasionally as, as a preacher, you get haunted by the fact that there are two occasions or there are two topics that collide at once and you think, is there any way for these things to overlap? And so a few weeks ago when we were planning this series, we looked at week number two on this weekend and said, I wonder if, if today is the day to think about legacy and to think about the overall impact. And the title, you know, we finally arrived on is Family Heroes. And that as we think about uh, what has taken place and what we celebrate on this particular weekend, where is the place that that applies and boils down inside of my life, uh, that we have the opportunity to step in and to be heroes even inside of this thing called family, this day in, day out uh, reality that we live into. And that is not meant to be cute or to somehow try to make things fit together that really don't fit. But I think there are some parallels that as we think about it, as we honor those who have offered their lives in service and sacrifice for our nation, we also think about the pattern by which we are to live. Because I believe most principles are transferable. That to do the right thing over here is not necessarily, as, as the word world often describes as, you know, there's situational ethics, that to do the right thing over here might not be the right thing over here. And, and while that's, that's true in some cases of outward action, most of the time, the principles, if we live according to the plan of God and, and according to his word, those things are transferable, that we would not act one way in one situation and one way in another. But those, those things are transferable. And so this morning, I want us to think about some of these things uh, a little bit. And, and so Memorial Day uh, was first known as Decoration Day and was kind of an informally celebrated ho holiday just after the end of the Civil War. It was a time for people to remember and to go and to decorate the graves, whether from the north or the south, the graves of Americans who fought and, and who died inside of uh, the war that had taken place. And so um, I had always been, you know, drawn to things that, um, you know, are patriotic or, you know, those things that are honorable inside of our world and, and growing up through, whether it be at a parade or um, heading you know, through high school and thinking about going to the Coast Guard Academy and, and those kind of things were always in the background. As a Boy Scout, uh, one of our annual trips was to Gettysburg. And so we would go to Gettysburg and that was one of our great trips. One of the coldest nights of my life was in Gettysburg in a rainy tent in the middle of November, but that's a different story for another time. Uh, and I was always struck by Gettysburg, how vast it, it was. And, and you go down that one road and there's monuments from all the, all the states that were erected there. And the different places of battles and the visitor center and, you know, the panoramic images and everything that was there. And it was just all inspiring and challenging at the same time seeing the different stats and the different stories and, and, and the sites and everything that, that, that had taken place there. But then there was one time uh, that was a little bit different than that. On our way back to Asbury, my roommate and I, who was a history major, and so that should be the first clue right there, we decided to take a little detour on our way back to Asbury, and while, while we were going from Baltimore to West, to West Virginia down Route 70, we stopped off in Sharpsburg, Maryland, and saw the place of the Battle of Antietam. Now, Gettysburg was the biggest battle, the, the bloodiest battle in, inside of American history and inside of the Civil War in particular. Uh, some 50-some thousand people were, were lost or, or wounded inside of that battle. But the Battle of Antietam was the bloodiest single day of battle. 23,000 people in one day either died or were lost or were severely wounded. 23,000 people in one day. 
And so we stopped there, and to my surprise, it was much different than Gettysburg. It was an ordinary place. It looked just like a small farming community. There was this barn with a hole in it, and there was this dirt road that had been called the Sunken Road that was renamed Bloody Lane. There wasn't an enormous visitor center. There were some monuments, but everything kind of blended in, and it was a very ordinary place. An ordinary place that, that changed the course of human, uh, human history, at least inside of our country, because Abraham Lincoln had written the Emancipation Proclamation, but had held it in a drawer for a couple of months. The, Nor the Northern Army had suffered, you know, defeat after defeat in battle. Morale was low. The midterm elections were coming, and if things didn't turn, uh, most likely there would be a, a change in the governmental structure um, because things were not going well. And so he, he stuffed in a drawer the Emancipation Proclamation until a time that it would be received in a place where it would have impact and it would have teeth. And so on that day of September 17, 1862, when a battle took place there near Sharpsburg at Antietam Creek, 23,000 people gave their life and the very course of American history was changed because five days later, on the 22nd, Abraham Lincoln offered the Emancipation Proclamation. And there things go from onward in, inside the Civil War. And so I, I walked those fields that day and I, I saw the different plaques that were there, but really was just struck by how ordinary, yet extraordinary at the same time, this place was. And I began to think about heroes a little bit and what really the, the shape of a hero looks like. It was a few years ago that I was at Sharptown and I received news that one of our youth group kids from a few years before, Derek Hearns, he was an ordinary, to say the least, youth group kid. He was paying attention some weeks and he was not paying attention other weeks. Some weeks he seemed to get it, some weeks he didn't seem to get it. He wasn't going to go to camp and then he had the best time of his life at camp and, and, and Derek was really just a normal youth group kid. He wasn't one of the bright shining stars. He wasn't one of the worst kids. But after that, after high school, Derek went into the Marines. And we received word that in a, a training exercise, his helicopter had gone down and Derek passed away over in, in the Middle East. And so I had the, the privilege and, and the honor and yet the huge responsibility of presiding over his funeral and, and to see the different you know, ways in which a military funeral even before the ceremony itself takes place, was amazing. And at the same time, I was reminded, reminded that Derek's young wife and his mom were grieving just the same as any other mom and any other wife would grieve. It was at the same time normalcy and ordinary combined with just this magnanimous individual and situation. It got me thinking a few different things about heroes. The first is that heroes are normally ordinary, normal people who simply devoted themselves to something larger than themselves. Ordinary people who devoted themselves to something larger than themselves. Second, they were ordinary people who were willing to pay a price for something that mattered dearly to them, to something that was more important than themselves, not only to, to live their life in devotion, but to even be willing to make sacrifice and to pay a price. The third thing I thought about is that heroes may act individually, 
but they're part of a much larger team or family. So I began to, to play with that and think around about that. And I wonder if for you and I today, those same principles hold true. You see, I think a, a family hero, an everyday hero, is somebody who is devoted to someone and someones and something larger than just me. Normal, everyday hero, heroes are people who have entrusted them, their lives to something larger than themselves. I think family heroes are also willing to pay a price, to make sacrifice, to intentionally act on behalf of someone else because it's more important than themselves. I think family heroes also know that actions take place individually, but success is only realized in light of the whole. In other words, I don't win unless we win. I think God is looking for some family heroes inside of our world. I think our country, I think our society is in desperate need of some people who embody those same principles that Derek embodied and that what I saw at the Battle of Antietam. Devoted to something larger than me. Willing to pay a price for what's most important. And that I recognize that I don't win unless we win. I wonder if there's some moms and dads, some kids, some grandparents, some aunts, some uncles, even some people who say at this stage of my life, I want to come alongside and maybe be a big brother, big sister, youth volunteer, children's worker, whatever the case might be, to make a difference beyond simply just me. So last week we began with this idea of no place like home and we thought about the ideal versus the real in terms of our family and that we all live with these two families in mind and whether there's a huge gap because things really aren't looking like what you think they should or what they could have or what they used to look like or whether it's a narrow gap, there is some gap between that which we think we want to be a part of and that which we're actually a part of. The kind of mom or, or dad or husband or wife or child or grandparent that we wish we could be or think that we're supposed to be and where we think that we actually execute on that. And so inside of that gap, if you will, we ended by saying it's not about perfection, but it's about priority. And do the people who are closest to us know that and feel that and understand that they're a priority inside of our lives? And what would it look like perhaps just to take that gap, again, however big or small, and not eliminate it, but to live in that tension and maybe just bring it just a little bit closer? that maybe week after week, maybe that gap is just a little bit closer than it was the week before. And so this week, as we think about uh, family heroes, I want to draw our attention again to uh, a passage that last week we kind of just referred to. That if we don't we don't be people who just give up on the ideal or kind of force people into our expectations and become so rigid that we're not no fun to be around, how do we live inside of that tension? How do we live inside of the principles of Scripture? And so Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read uh, three small sections, but you can read down through uh, from 21 all the way to chapter 6, verse 4. Submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Again, as, as Paul, six chapters, three on theology, 
who Christ is, what the Christian faith is, what faith looks like, what salvation looks like. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, how that is lived out, how that is practiced. Paul is going to devote a half a chapter to these family relationships. It's not a ton. We don't get a whole big treatise, but it's a substantial part of what he's writing. And so he begins with this principle, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ as the overarching principle of how we interrelate to one another. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first command, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So these verses, we either love to quote them or we hate to quote them. They've been the source of uh, great debate at time, abuse at other times. And sometimes we think it's either just so archaic that we set it aside or we grab onto it and use it in a way maybe perhaps outside of how it was meant to be written. And so the main gist of this is to be intentional with those relationships, to be intentional inside of family relationships, the overarching principle being submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But then Paul is going to make that specific and he goes down through each of these different categories, wives, husbands, parents, children. One of the things I always find fascinating is for me, it is easier for me to focus on the instructions and the commands given to other people. And so, for instance, when we're trying to decide where, out to, where to go out to eat and I make my decision and Rachel differs, it's now time for, honey, it's time to do some family devotions. Turn in your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Let's going to read about where we are going to go to dinner. Ten minutes later, I wake up with a knot on my head, and we're, you know, we, we're going somewhere else. Children, 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 haven't you ever heard, honor your father and mother, Right? We want to go and point out to somebody else the verses they should be reading. And I think if Paul were here, he would say, I write the caption in the front just so you know. It's like a name tag on it. Wives, this is what I have for you. Husbands, this is what I have for you. Don't read someone else's section until you've mastered your own section. Now, I'm not saying it's not the whole Bible for each and every one of us. But I'm saying it is easier to focus on where someone else needs to grow and not where I need to grow. And so Paul wants to get very practical, very countercultural, if you will, when you think of the role of women and the role of children inside of that culture. It would be so countercultural for, for men who are in, in power and who have you know, the most value and legal rights to say, why don't you love your wife the same way that Christ loved the church? Because the picture there is very different than how the average man in the Roman Empire or even ancient Judaism was supposed to love his wife. It's extremely countercultural to say to 
to women who did not have much of a, of a place and a voice to talk about their role, not just in submission, submission, but to be in right relationship and to be valued by their husbands. And children who had very little value, and the infant mortality rate was so high that it was almost, we don't even really want to talk about these people until they get to be a certain age. No, fathers, don't do anything that's going to exas exasperate, to wear out, to wear down those to whom you've been entrusted. It's extremely countercultural, but it always begins with me, not with you. The problem is sometimes I know 100% clearly what you should be doing. It's a little bit harder when I look in the mirror because I have all the excuses and all the rationalization and all the reasons why I can't or I shouldn't or I tried or I didn't. And I find all these different reasons to let me off the hook, but I know with 100% certainty what you should be doing. And I wonder if Paul would say to us, begin with your own pronouns. Begin with your own heading. The overarching principle that if we mentioned this last week, that I might think first, maybe even think more, maybe even think best about your needs before mine. What if the family structure was shifted where instead of thinking about me first and then what you could have done or should have done or I want you to do, instead I begin to think first and more and best about you before me. I think that's the overarching thing that Paul is getting at inside of these verses. But this is not a attend a conference, read a book, listen to a podcast, check off the box. These things are ongoing lifestyle commitments and habits that get lived out. And so I want to share with you, and I, I think these are rooted inside of what we've read, but we're, we're not going to chapter and verse, but try to get as practical as we can inside of these upcoming minutes. Uh, I want to offer you what I think are three hero habits that we can begin to live out inside of our family life. The first is make more deposits than you do withdrawals. Now, way back when, and, and my brother Russ is here today. By the way, I normally pay my kids a dollar if I use them in a service. I'm not doing that with my brother. I think he should pay me for the press. But um, So when, when I was little, I got, I don't know how many of you did, and, and if you're under the age of 25, this is going to sound like a foreign concept to you, but uh, when I opened a savings account, I got this little green book that inside of it, in, in like size two font, they would type in like what you put in or what you took out and the date. And occasionally, like, I would only go into the bank every six months or so, and it would have, like, a little interest thing. And uh, inside of this book, you could probably fit, like, 20 different transactions on a page, and then there were about 10 pages. So for an eight-year-old kid, this is a huge book. But I remember my brother Russ saying, fill the book. You want to, between now and the time you turn 18, put as much, many different deposits as you can into the book. And so... It was, it was my goal, and I took that to heart, that any time I earned money from my little fruit, fruit stand out front or got some birthday money or things I wasn't going to spend, to make my deposits because I wanted to fill the book. But again, with size too fun, I mean, I'd have to like go to the bank every week to fill the book. But, but I kept adding money into it and learned how to save. I learned pretty well how to spend, too, but learned how to save because of that little green book. Anybody know exactly what I'm talking about at all? You have a little green book? All right, little passport savings account from Century Federal in Elmer, Elmer New Jersey. You were there, too. Um, Stephen Covey uh, wrote the book, 
the seven habits of highly successful people. And there was a version of that called the seven habits of highly successful families. And inside of that, he talks about this very thing of deposits and withdrawals. We all want to be people who make deposits. We all think that we are people who make more deposits than withdrawals until we start living. And if you look over your shoulder and say, over the past 24 hours, have I withdrawn more or have I deposited more? And so a few things here just to think about. Uh, these are kind of opposites of one another. These aren't the only ones, but ones we could think about. When you keep your promise, it's almost like you're putting pennies and dimes into the piggy bank. When you break your promise, it's like a dollar gets taken out. And at the end of the day, we have all the excuses of why we had to break the promise. None of us set out to be jerks, okay? But things happen. You don't know what happened in my schedule. You don't know the complications. I really couldn't do that. I tried, but it didn't happen. But what if we were just people who kept our promises? Such a simple thing. What difference would that make? Acts of kindness versus put-downs. Deposits versus withdrawals. Loyalty. Loyalty in relationship is not that I'm going to go out and find a new brother or that I'm going to go and find a new spouse. Loyalty is not just staying there, but loyalty means that I am for you, I am with you, I am not going anywhere. Not necessarily the op opposite, but I wonder if one of the withdrawals is gossip, and I'm not necessarily for you, that when it all comes down to it, I'm for me. Listening. You all know when you're listened to, and you all know when somebody across the counter is just nodding, or maybe even worse than that, they're, they just can't wait to get out what they want to say next, and they're just waiting for a pause in what you say. They're, they could care less about what you're saying. They're just ready to pounce in with their next statement. Deposits and withdrawals. What if in addition to keeping our promises, what if we were people who said that we were sorry more? Instead of always trying to dig our heels in that we're right, even though we know we're wrong just for the sake of image preservation. And what if we were clear with our expectations instead of the false or maybe even the unspoken expectations that sometimes come around? Stephen Covey says it's almost like there's a little piggy bank. This emotional love bank, this emotional bank of ours, and that each and every day you're either putting something in or taking something out from the people who are closest to you. Make more deposits than withdrawals. You see, because at the end of the day, families is kind of this overarching thing. These people aren't going anywhere. I'm going to have them for years, for decades. And so work might demand something today, and so who cares if I cheat my family today? I'll make up for it some other time. The problem is there's not an alarm clock on your family. Occasionally something clicks in, like maybe there's a graduation coming up, or there's some rite of passage, or something's about to happen, or somebody says, we have to talk because I am not happy. Then all of a sudden the bells go off, but for the most part the bells never go off. Even though it's important, and we would all say it's important, you can live today, and you can live tomorrow, and you can live the next day, and just say, I'll get to it when. I really should. We really ought to. And it just never happens because it's in that category of being important but not really so urgent inside of our lives. And so the other day at 
the wedding that, that Jack referred to, we read like we do probably at most weddings, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs. All these different things, and as poetic as it is, it is incredibly action-oriented in practicality. Because I cannot just say that I am a patient person unless I am displaying patience today. And then again tomorrow. And so these relational dynamics are very action-oriented and very specific. And at the end of the day, the question isn't whether we have a 100% report card, but I think one of the handles that helps us is that I put more in today than I took out. Make more deposits than you do withdrawals. Number two, I think we need to learn to seize the uncomfortable moments. A great marriage is not about the absence of conflict, but it's about being able to work through conflict. Having a great family dynamic with your children is not that they never do anything to get in trouble, but it's, is their discipline and love somehow intertwined in such a way that they're better for it coming through. Good families aren't conflict-free, but they learn in their own way, how to manage and address and handle conflict. We need to learn to lean in. Because every instinct within us says that when the uncomfortable moments happen, and we're not just talking about conflict, maybe it's when, when someone is you know, hurt and their feelings are hurt, maybe it's when there's misunderstanding, maybe it's just when something happens where there is no words to make it right, our natural tendency is to lean away. Because we don't know how to fix it. Our natural tendency is to step back because I don't want to have to admit that maybe I did something wrong. Our natural tendency is to somehow step back and say, let me just wait till all this settles and then I'll enter back in. What if we learn to be people who actually walked towards the mess? That in those moments and in those places where life gets a little bit messy, we're not walking the other way, we're walking towards it. One of the best descriptions that you sometimes hear of a hero, whether it's in stories out of 9-11 or from the battlefront, whatever, is that when everybody else was going this way, they were going this way. To walk towards the place where nobody else wanted to be. What if we learned to, to live in to those uncomfortable moments? Not because it's going to be neat or, hey, if we just, the pastor said, if we just lean back in, it's going to make things wonderful. No, it still might be a mess. But what if we still leaned into it? and didn't run away. Three, what if we realize that the times when there is the greatest strength is in times of vulnerability? That as a mom or as a dad or as a husband or a wife, we, we're not just digging our heels in to be right or to be in control or to be in power, but we actually realized and lived out the principle that we know to be true that strength is most, most and best seen in vulnerability. Because if you read the Gospels, and you come to the end, it was the time in Jesus' life where defeat was most evident, was the time when victory was about to take place. The time when Jesus' public opinion was at its all-time lowest, was the very time he was going to exercise 
his power as Lord of all. At the point in time where nails were being driven into his hands and into his feet, he was the Savior over all creation. And I don't think that's just how we get into heaven. I think, again, it's a principle that's transferable, that that's how we are meant to live here. That you know when someone has power and strength, when they can somehow tailor that down and still enter in, in the most delicate of situations. What if we didn't have to be right? What if we didn't have to be in control? What if, according to the movie Hercules, when he's cut on the arm and they, they give something to quickly bandage it up because, after all, don't ever let them see you bleed. We instead choose for the route of our Savior who said, it's by these wounds that they are healed. Who cares who sees me bleed? What if we were people who told the truth? Regardless of consequence, regardless of how it made us look, regardless of what the outcome. What if we were people who kept our promises, regardless of the consequences or the price? What would it say clearly to the people who are closest to us? What would it say to the people who are looking in inside of our lives and who say, how is it that you could possibly live like that? I don't think great families is just a byproduct of our faith. I think great families is a gateway by which a lost and a broken world who does not think church is important somehow realizes maybe there's something to that because it affects how they can live. One of the obstacles, I think, is when the people who live next to us say, why should I add one more thing to my schedule because their lives look exactly like mine. We've been close enough to see their marriages look exactly like mine. Their kids behave exactly like mine. Who needs church? But what if there was something redemptive, not perfect, not so magical and holy, not leave it to beaverish, not folded hands and manicured long, but what if there was something that was so real but so countercultural that people looking around us would say, who in the world are these people? Now, I want to wrap this up by coming all the way back to the fact maybe where some of us are is that, is this really possible? And I was at uh, Delanco camp in the summer of 93, and I was contemplating where God was going to lead me next, and if ministry was one of those things. And it was a very hard week of camp, but it was also a week that was instrumental in, in terms of that. And I remember laying in my bed one night, this was kind of before evening service, I was taking a little bit of a rest after I got showered, and I was there with my, um, now hang with me, again, if you're under 25, you have to imagine this as a, an act in history, with my cassette Walkman, my cassette Walkman with my, like, headphones on, and I was listening to a cassette from Keith Green. Now... Keith Green died in 1982. I did not become a Christian until 1991. How in the world I got Keith Green cassette tapes, no one knows. Rachel still makes fun of me because she said only her grandma listened to Keith Green. Um, but there was a song that was uh, entitled Make My Life a Prayer to You. 
And I remember the one phrase, and it said, no token prayers, no compromise, no empty words, no white lies. I got that actually reverse order. No empty words, no white lies, no token prayers, no compromise. And I began to think about like what I wanted my life to look like, what I wanted to pursue, if it was just about image, if it was just about success, or if there was something deep at the heart of me that not only drew, you know, drove my personal growth in Christ, but drove what I wanted to give my life towards. No empty words. I think I've had some empty words since then. No white lies. I think probably before I left camp that week, there was a white lie probably that came in. No token prayers. I probably prayed a few of those along the way. No compromise. At the end of the day, it wasn't about perfection. It was about priority inside of my life. And I wonder what life would look like inside of our family and to those who are closest to us if that rang true. No empty words. No white lies. No token prayers. No compromise. Inside of Second Chronicles chapter 20, it's one of those classic Old Testament stories where there's a battle that's about to rage, and uh, the battle that's taking place is way more than what uh, the king and the Israelite army think that they could handle. And so in this case, Jehoshaphat uh, pulls together the people there, you know, as the Moabite army was coming up against them, and I'm going to read another verse besides the one that's up there. He's praying and he says, oh God, will you not judge them? Meaning, will you not come to our rescue? Will you not vindicate what's in front of us? Our enemy is at the door. Will you do something? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. You ever feel like that sometime? We have no power to face what we know is coming our way, even though we know that you're with us, even we know that you're faithful, even know that you've promised to lead us through. And then the verse we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And then the, the writer just tacks on another one, and it says, All the men of Judah, with their wives and their children and their little ones, stood there before the Lord. I love the verse, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, but the context adds to it when the king is not afraid to bring all the people, including the wives and the children and the little ones, and even inside of his prayer, the valiant king says, God, you're going to come, you're going to you know, do something here, we offer the whole situation to you, but by the way, we have no clue what to do next, but we're going to look to you. We have no clue what to do next, but we're going to look to you. And I think sometimes in, in this thing called family that it gets, again, so big and hairy, and we think we have plenty of time, but we know that we're losing time and things are going the wrong way and maybe we should have done or I wish I had done. If part of the ideal and real is to just close the gap a little bit, what would it look like if we were people who made more deposits than withdrawals? What would it look like inside of our life if we stepped into those uncomfortable moments and not ran away? What would it look like if people... We weren't afraid for people to actually see the real us. 
It seems impossible. Maybe it's dangerous. There's a whole bunch of different scenarios out here. Some of us have great marriages. Some of us have marriages that are on the rocks. Some of us just have marriages that are just going through the motions. Inside of our kids, some of us have grandkids. Some of us have no kids. Some of us have little kids. Some of us have teenage kids. There are all sorts of different situations here. But what if we all just took a step and said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are going to be on you. And would you take this thing called family and not only bless it for us, but bless it for others to see? I wonder if that were to happen, what that would do inside of our community. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Let's pray together. Let me ask you this morning, just as we quiet our hearts and the the band makes their way up here. Where is the place where this strikes most home? Maybe it's one particular relationship. Maybe it's one time of the week that's incredibly difficult to be who you know God is calling you to be. Maybe there's an area inside of your life that God's been working on. Or maybe things are a mess and you just don't know where to start. Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Would you help us this week, Lord? To be people who walk towards the mess. To be people who even just begin by making more deposits. Would you help us not just to keep up an image or keep control or power, but to simply just be real with people who see what we're really like anyway? God, would you come in such a way that the people who are closest to us get our best? Would you come and so infuse your life inside of our family relationships that Maybe people around would even be pointed in your direction because of it. God, it's a vast army that's outside the door. But we know that you're with us. And so, Lord, in the times and in the places and in the relationships and in the ways that we don't know what to do, our eyes are on you this morning. We ask that you would lead us and guide us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.